Welcome to the Balance of Power Roundtable broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson. This is the show where we dive down underneath the day-to-day issues and get perspectives from left, right, and center. Coming from my left is former U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes. And from my right is conservative commentator, analyst, and consultant Alicia Preston. I'm Matt Robeson coming at you right down the center. Speaking of things coming at you fast, Paul, you had a fascinating interview yesterday that went into the Capital Close-Up podcast feed with an astronomer, John G. and Forty of the University of New Hampshire. For our New Hampshire listeners, they have their big astronomy festival coming up this weekend. Not to be missed. It actually sounds amazing. Check out that episode. But for our national listeners, the big piece that you guys covered that I thought was was pretty awesome was, hey, we're doing Armageddon here. We just slammed a spacecraft into an asteroid. Uh, you want to just give us like the, the 15 second summary on that? What just happened there, Paul? Well, I mean, this is like it's otherworldly. I mean, we're we're living in in sci-fi times. You know, one of, look, one of my favorite television movies uh, whenever I'm zapping channels is Armageddon. Bruce Willis and 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 Affleck saving Ben Affleck saving the world so he can get home to live Tyler Bruce Willis stays back on the asteroid is the last man standing and he somehow manages to detonate the explosion that blows up the asteroid that's going to crush the earth so fast forward to NASA, which launched a refrigerator-sized spacecraft out into the great reaches of outer space, targeting one of a pair of asteroids, which were just floating along, not minding their own business, not threatening the Earth, but we want to be ready in case an asteroid and there have been many asteroids which have hit the Earth. But in case a the mother of all asteroids targets the Earth, we want to be ready to launch something and hit the asteroid and blow it up or blow it off course before it hits the Earth. That's that's pretty reasonable. So, Alicia, what did you make of the victory lap that Marjorie Taylor Greene took on Twitter this morning now that her claim of Jewish space lasers has been vindicated? <laughs> Joy, <laughs> that didn't happen. Sorry, I was I, that was a fever dream. Sorry, sorry, that didn't actually happen. Anyway, you know wait, I'm going to check her Twitter account to see if that really happened. Now, but though. wait a second, people, this is incredible. Out there in way out in outer space, NASA sent this thing out and it hit the asteroid just as just as they planned. Now. We don't know whether it blew it off course, but that wasn't really it. They were just trying to prove the value of Jewish space lasers. So <laughs> kudos, kudos to NASA. And I'm sorry, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, but um, Jewish space lasers really work. Hey, uh, look, first of all, it sounds like that rocket that NASA launched wasn't the only thing that got high this morning. And second of all, um, we <laughs> do have to segue to some serious news here in the board. But I, I do commend that episode. Saving that the planet is not serious news. I think this is super cool. I just want to weigh in that Ivan Falls, they announced it. We won't know for a month if it worked, if it actually they wanted to. I think it was one degree set it off of its current trajectory to see if they could. But I think this is motivated by what is one of my favorite movies I've probably seen 40 times, Armageddon, because remember how they all the scientists had to scramble? Yeah. They're trying yeah. to prepare so they don't yeah. have to scramble. Right. So I thank mean, you, Bruce Willis, for potentially in the future actually saving the earth. All right. I'm a deep impact guy. Mm. Uh, I don't I don't like Armageddon. <gasps> I like Morgan Freeman as the president. I thought it was awesome. I thought it was very calming. 
I, I love listening to his voice. Anyway, all right. Who doesn't? Uh, <laughs> let's 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 bring things back down to uh, ground level here. Uh, what I, what I want to do this week is sort of tee off of what Politico laid out this weekend. I think a number of analysts have been trying to boil down what this election is all about. We talked on the show last week about Bill McInturf's statement. He was one of the pollsters behind the NBC News poll. He's a Republican. And he said, look, what's basically going on in this election cycle as we are down the home stretch toward the midterms is there's two campaigns going on from the Republican side. They're trying to make the election all about their set of issues. It's inflation, immigration, crime. Right. That's that's their things. If we're talking about those things, Republicans are winning. And his point is, if we're talking about the issues that Democrats want, Democrats are winning. And, you know, those are things like abortion and Trump. And so I the, the, the setup from Politico this weekend was they think they've kind of distilled it down to four issues, abortion, the economy, immigration and Trump. And they're, they're kind of mixing and matching there. You could hear which ones are the Democrats' issues, which ones are the Republicans' issues. And they provided a little bit of a dive into each of them. So I want to hit those issues and talk a little bit about where we stand. And just to kind of tee off this conversation, just recently out is the latest CBS News poll, which has revised downward its projection of how Republicans are going to do in the race for the U.S. House. They still think Republicans are going to take the House, but they basically say, look, Democrats have a five-seat majority now. We think it's going to flip, and then Republicans are going to have a five-seat majority. It's going to be that close, and it's all hinging on which set of issues are front and foremost for voters, and their finding is that two-thirds of voters feel that their rights and freedoms are at stake more important than their financial well-being. All right. So that's the that's the kickoff to this. The first issue that Politico teed up is abortion. Where do we stand on the messaging and and the kind of policy updates around this issue? I think the latest news is out of Arizona. Paul, what did you make of that and where do you think we we stand on the fight for that issue? Well, as as Republicans in the states double down on abortion restrictions, uh, the radar of the American public is finely attuned to the issue. Um, Months ago, we kind of uh, downplayed whether we thought the issue was going to be of seminal importance in the election. We we said, oh, come on, it's the midterms. It's always the economy, stupid. That's all that counts. Nobody's going to pay any attention to this. But that has persistently been wrong. We were wrong about that. Uh, The public is paying attention. Um, and every time I think that there's more news about another Republican legislative um, uh, effort to completely ban abortion, uh, with Lindsey Graham calling for a national abortion um, uh, ban, uh, the, what the Democrats have done is they have tied every Republican candidate to Lindsey Graham's call for a national abortion pa- uh, um, ban. And that plays in directly, Matt, to your point earlier that the poll talked about people concerned about losing their freedoms. Um, because we also saw polling earlier that that's that 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 suggested that threats to democracy, 
um, was more important to many people than than anything else, that it was the top issue. So we're going to see the January 6th committee uh, back at it uh, very shortly. Trump keeps saying crazier and crazier things. Um, these days, he's now a full-on QAnon uh, conspiracy theorist. Um, playing their he's playing their song um so so that paul uh, paul you're being literal about that i don't think all of I, I am literal I, i'm he's, literal he's I'm not, literally he's, at his rallies now playing the QAnon theme song first of all i didn't is. know that they had a theme song yeah well they, they had a theme song they have some kind of theme they have some kind of theme music that, that he's using they, they let him use it because he's now a full-on q guy so all of this plays into uh, not just women's reproductive rights. And remember, women are the largest voting bloc um, when it comes to participation in elections. And I think women of all on, uh, all over the political spectrum um, are sensitive, aware, and fired up about abortion. Um, but also it clearly presents, um, especially when you read the Clarence Thomas decision, um, the abortion issue represents a continuing threat to the freedoms that we have taken for granted. So it's a it's a big issue, and it's proving to be a real motivator in this election. Alicia, I want to turn to you with a little bit, just to bridge over to you. I have a political theory that I advanced in our last Beyond Politics episode. I interviewed my co-author, on a Newsweek article that I, I had out last week, uh, William Ewell, who's a professor of political science. And my theory to him was, I still, I got the Dobbs, I got the Dobbs effect wrong. I thought, as Paul was alluding to a moment ago, that this would be like previous iterations of setbacks on abortion rights. It would not particularly motivate or enthuse Democratic voters. We have seen the opposite to be the case. I suggested to Dr. Ewell that there might be two things going on. There might be a direct effect. There are people who are voters directly linked to this issue, who, who care a lot about it, and they've been activated. But it also could have just been a generalized wake-up call. It could have been a catalyst that made Democratic voters tune in more to the news and pay more attention to the election. What do you make of that? And I'm 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 hitting you with all of that because the news out of Arizona last week was that a judge had ruled that an almost total 1864 ban on abortion has to be enforced. And I could just imagine Republican political operatives there kind of head slapping themselves. It may be a policy outcome they want, but politically, that kind of a thing has got to just galvanize the voters that they don't want to see turning out. But so what do you make of my theory? I, I maintain what I've said all along is that there is not going to be a huge voter turnout based on abortion that wouldn't have been there to begin with. I think if you vote on abortion, either direction, pro-life or pro-choice, if that is a driving force for your voting habit, it already was and it will be again. Will there be mm. a small margin in the middle? that maybe some democratic base are a little more motivated to come out. Maybe a few independents who don't always bother to vote other than presidentials. Maybe a few of them will come out. I don't think it's going to be a massive shift. Now, what does bother me is, you know, Paul just said, Lindsey Graham's abortion ban. It's not an abortion ban. Number one, I'm not saying I support it, but it's not a ban means you can't do it. 
his says restriction after 15 weeks. We're dealing with this in New Hampshire. Um, I wrote about it last weekend, and that's important. I'll tell you why, because you know, Maggie Hassan is a senator. Annie Custer's a congresswoman. I haven't seen the other congressman, Chris Pappas, do an ad directly on this, but third parties are attacking his opponent on this. And they're calling it New Hampshire's restrictive abortion ban. You can get an abortion up to 24 weeks in New Hampshire. There is an exception in the mother and for a fetal abnormality. That is in line with 80% of Granite Staters and 80% of the entire country. So they're calling it extreme. Extreme is not when you're with 80%, it's with you with 20%. But what bothers me is they're not saying what it is. They're just saying a abortion ban. I wrote about this, trying to correct the record, and I get an email from a man who owns a plumbing company. And he and his wife, you know, these are educated voters because they're reading political columns in a newspaper. And he said, he emailed me to say he and his wife had no idea you could get an abortion up to 24 weeks. He thought with all this ad in the social media that the ban had been put in place, meaning you stopped abortion. And why I say that is it bothers me that you've got Democratic campaigns in New Hampshire and in other states giddy about their message working, but their message is misinformation campaign. And they should be ashamed of themselves for misinforming the public. Get out there and be honest. I've said to you guys many times, I think there's a discussion to be had about when that restriction should be. There is a discussion about when the rights of the mother cede to the rights of the child. Is that 24 weeks? Is that 15 weeks? Is it somewhere in between? Let's have an honest discussion. But when you have elected leaders, the most powerful people in America, lying to the base to win an election about such an emotional issue, I think they should be ashamed of themselves and should be voted out if only for lying, not for the issue of abortion. I don't know, Alicia, I see this as a total dog bites man story in the newspaper parlance, which is to say it's not all that surprising. Mario Cuomo once said that we campaign in poetry and we govern in prose. Nowadays, what he means is we campaign in slam poetry. We, of course, characterize every issue in its most extreme version. I don't think that this is even the biggest example out there of how various issues are kind of twisted to maximum rhetorical advantage for one party or the other. You could give me a very long list of democratic characterizations of policy issues that are taking things a little far. And I could do the same for you with Republican issues. I don't see this but as this particularly isn't a little far. It's a lie. I don't see this as a lie at all. It is. It is absolutely a ban. The, 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 the standard of the law up to the Dobbs decision was that you could get an abortion in America. And now it's left up to the states. And in many cases, in about half the states, you cannot get an abortion. And if you are living in Lindsey Graham's preferred universe, you have vastly restricted access. You have enacted a ban. Tell that to the women who are actually going to be prohibited from getting this kind of care under Lindsey Graham's version of America. That is a ban. There are exceptions to it, but that doesn't mean it's not a ban, right? Third if you trimester, have a, if, if you it's have not a, a ban. speed if limit. the ban means you can't do something, you are banned from doing something, number one. No, no, number no. Two, if you have a speed Characterization limit. of a third term abortion as care is also false and misleading. Yes, if, if a woman is going to die, if a woman yes, is going to die, that is care. That is care Every single yeah. OBGYN that is weighed in on this issue has said, and I quote, in the third every trimester, single one, really, 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 do you know what I'm going to say? Because it's every single one, and you can every try find okay. some. Do you know Hit what I'm going to say? In the third trimester, it is never necessary to abort a baby. Birth a baby by force, absolutely, to save the life of the mother. But to abort a baby in the third trimester, because if you're talking ectopic pregnancy or things like that, that's already determined months, months before. So any 
fatal or even not fatal, but illness or injury that a mother could get in the third trimester can always be resolved by forcing a birth. It is not necessary to abort. And I'll mind you that in the third trimester, my grandmother was We're born not at talking six about gestation. the third trimester. We're not talking about the third trimester. In 24 We're weeks, about what I'm talking about is 15 weeks. We're talking about 15 weeks. Listen, I reference the New Hampshire speed law. limit and there is an exception for ambulances. You don't say, well, it's really not a limit because ambulances can go faster. Police cars can go faster. It is a speed limit. It is a law. There is a prohibition on traveling faster than 65 miles per hour. What Lindsey Graham wants to enact across America is a ban. It is a restriction. You cannot get an abortion with exceptions. The fact that there are exceptions doesn't mean that it's not a ban and it's not a restriction. All a restriction and a ban are two very different things just by definition, number one. Number two, Lindsey Graham's proposal is not law. What I was referencing in New Hampshire, what these politicians and Democrats are lying about is a law and it is 24 weeks and that is third trimester. I, I, I think what you originally were referring to was the characterization of Lindsey Graham's abortion ban at 15 weeks. I now, still don't think it's a ban if you can have it at 15 weeks. But the messaging, the messaging in New Hampshire, that, that may be a that may be a different story. But what we're still getting at, what we're still getting at is it's all about where you draw the line, right? Where is the restriction? I think restriction and ban are pretty much the same thing. But uh, again, I don't even see this as the most extreme example of deploying rhetoric in a political campaign in order to get an advantage for your partisan side. Now, look, where we agree and where we agreed last week when we talked about this is, I think we're both saying a political campaign is not where we're going to resolve a nuanced issue like this, right? We're actually, despite the, the fun argument that we're having here, you and I are actually in a not very dissimilar place on, the, on this underlying substantive issue, which goes to the core point, which is I, I'm, I am not offended when campaigns make their strongest points as part of a campaign. That's your job as a campaign consultant is to make your strongest point. I don't see it particularly as a lie. And uh, I, I could come up with a whole bunch of examples of things that we could characterize by the same standard as lies from the Republican side. It, it doesn't particularly make me grasp my pearls. And I have nice pearls, by the way. I, I actually, say, I don't think you should be wearing. I, pearls. No, 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 no. I have no. really good pearls. I went to China. Anyway, that, that's that's a whole side story. <laughs> hey, um, we are so far over time. I can't even I can't even begin to look. Here's what I wanted to. Paul, do you want to get into word edge wise? We've got about a minute. No, I think you, you you've covered it all. Fantastic. Well, that's. On that you know, note, <laughs> this is the first we've dumbfounded Paul for one thing. Um, <laughs> you know, we started off ever since ever since he, he got in his space laser piece. Um, we've we've we pretty much. Uh, well, he kind of mic dropped with the space laser piece, space well, laser true. piece. But but for the next since we've got 30 seconds, I, I hope listeners understand Matt and I and Paul are arguing about one of the most emotional issues one can argue about. And when we're done the conversation, we laugh and smile at each other. That's what we should be doing in this country with every issue so we can actually resolve what ills us in America. The biggest one is divisiveness. Right. Amen. Amen. And the thing is, I think, uh, the, the again, the place where you and I, I think the three of us agree is we're not going to resolve this issue as part of a campaign. We need to govern in prose. And I think what disturbs all of us, what unites all of us, regardless of partisan affiliation on this panel, is the fact that we're not worried about our campaigns being dysfunctional. 
We're worried about our government becoming dysfunctional because we don't have functioning adults who actually represent us and want to work on these issues in a serious way, like Paul used to when he was in Congress. Let's talk about the economy. This is the over the weekend Politico magazine laid out the four issues that they think are are sort of the pivot points of the election. Number two for them was the economy. Things have continued to be very weird when it comes to the economy. Last week, the Fed raised interest rates. When you raise interest rates, that makes investors concerned. As a consequence, the Dow Jones Industrial Average crashed by 1.6% on Friday. It closed at its lowest level since the very month that Joe Biden was elected. So the stock market is reacting poorly. At the same time, the, the economic story is, like I said, it's weird. Wages are up. Gas prices are down. They are way down. But inflation is far from resolved. In fact, um, food prices and other important uh, items for consumers remain high and in some cases rising. And so there's a very hard economic story to tell. Paul, this is the section of the show where we send you sobbing into a beer because you've lived through this. You've lived through this trying to run a campaign as a Democratic Senate nominee during a kind of weird economy. Back in 2010, we were in the midst of a recovery. Things were trending up, but most people were still feeling profound economic pain. And you were stuck with a dilemma of trying to say to voters, we're moving in the right direction. I understand that you don't feel well about how things are going. Uh, you're at risk of seeming out of touch. You're at risk of, of not taking credit for accomplishments. What do you do? And what are the Democrats' prospects for dealing with this super tricky issue? What do you do? You talk about abortion. You talk about they're taking away your freedoms. We're talking about uh, look at the successful um, uh, administration, which just saved us from destruction by the asteroid. You talk about uh, Trump's bad haircut. You talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, Lauren Boebert. You talk about anything but the economy. And then when, if you're forced to talk about the economy, you say, look at the great job the administration has done with gas prices. They were high and now they've come down. And by the way, the economy is getting better. Inflation is moderating. Yes, of course, these are important steps, but these are steps that are important to take for all of us. Things will get better. They are getting better. And then, and then when, when people, when Alicia comes back with, yeah, but the price of bread, the price of eggs, I went to the supermarket yesterday and a bag of groceries cost me $65. You said, well, you've got to stop shopping at those, at those expensive whole paycheck uh, food stores and, and, and go to Costco, um, where you can save, save some money. Yeah, you got to stop buying crudite is what it is. That's right. Just get the regular cut vegetables. You and your crudite. Let me just tell you, if you buy a whole carrot, you can cut it up yourself. You don't need to buy the pre-cut crudite. That's what you've been doing. And 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 you've got you just got to it's time to pull back a little bit. Well, Alicia, you you have definitely been singing from this hymnal that like you just want your party to talk about high prices nonstop and not get caught in any of this other nonsense. Do you have anything to add to that ongoing staunch position? Because you- yeah, I wish they'd listen to me. <laughs> right. I mean, I wish they'd take my sage advice. Look, 
my husband did the grocery shopping and he just went this morning and he came back and I'm working. He's telling me what he got. <clears throat> and he got three different packages of chicken. I have been with this man for 10 years. I promise you when he goes grocery shopping, he has never bought chicken once in a decade. He doesn't like chicken. He finds it boring. He only eats chicken when I make chicken because I like chicken and I serve it and he has no other choice. He got three packages of chicken. Why? Because everything's so expensive. Now, we keep talking about this doesn't matter. CNBC keeps uh, just came out with a new poll analysis. This is actually, this was worse than I thought. This is the chicken poll? The this chicken, is the chicken the, poll. The I'm going to call poll. it the chicken poll. If you polled the chickens, poll. I know how they would stand yeah, on I'm this. not sure the chickens ah, like this economy right now. The chickens are like, darn it. Taking more of us in time. Okay, so nearly 70%, 70% of Americans are looking for extra work to combat inflation. 85% of Americans said they have changed their spending habits due to inflation. 72% say it's impacted the way they view their job. And 57% have sought out new or additional roles in the past year to combat inflation. Those numbers are real. So when we talk about abortion, 70% of people are not voting based on abortion. 70% of the people are not affected by abortion. This is 70% of Americans are looking for additional work to enhance their house budget so they can survive. This is not something to poo-poo. And, you know, and as long as the Democrats keep doing it, you keep talking about abortion, keep doing it, because that doesn't affect 70% of Americans right now who have to get an additional job. That's how serious it is. This isn't just pulling the waistband. This is getting more work. The place where I differ with you is that we have polling results that are consistently showing that the messaging on abortion and on threats to democracy is breaking through because you're seeing it reflected in the CBS poll, the NBC poll, that this issue has risen to the very top or at least tied with inflation. So, I, Alicia, I hear you and I agree with your prescription for Republicans. Republicans, I hate to say this, I don't want to give you advice that might help you, but Alicia's right. Listen to her. Listen to everything she just said. Tell these stories. Talk about Alicia's husband. You should talk about him. He's a great dude. And that's what you should do. And he's hot. But, we should put him in a TV ad, Republicans. He's oh, like the, a smoking hot guy. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, so, okay. So here, let me set the scene. Here he is, the hot dude pushing a shopping cart. He's wearing his Nike flip flops, his Adidas. gym shorts. Now I'm picturing him like Adidas. Derek Zoolander, you know, a, like a t-shirt. Like, Adidas. Yeah. yeah, ponytail. He hasn't shaved and he's standing in front of the chicken. And he's holding up the different packages and he's looking at the labels and seeing, okay, $6.99 a pound. No, I can't do it. Alicia would kill me. I just can't do that. She doesn't like chicken anyway. $4.99. Well, maybe. Well, where can I find the four-day-old chicken? And that ad is the winning Republican ad. That is. That is. is. Uh, look, I, in all seriousness, we were just talking about how we campaign and slam poetry and we govern in prose. The issue that I think the adults in government, like all three of them that may be left after this election, <laughs> need to start to grapple with after we get past the midterms is the finding from the Brookings Institution from a few weeks ago that as many as 4 million Americans may be restricted. Uh, oh, I'm not supposed to use that word in this episode. They may be Damn. being He's held back from rejoining the labor force because of long COVID. I think that this is going to be a massive ongoing economic and societal issue that we're going to have to deal with. It's a bit of a hot button because Republicans have not wanted to talk about the impact of COVID and Democrats have wanted to tell a story that things are better 
or back, or if you listen to our president on 60 Minutes this week, that COVID is over. COVID is not over. There is going to be a lingering overhang for many of our friends, neighbors, maybe even listeners to this show. And I'm just telling you, this is a story to watch. This is something to pay attention to. We're going to be dealing with this for years to come, and we're going to see it in the economic data. The counterpoint is that today we found out that factory jobs have have increased by about 67,000 domestic factory jobs after years and years of a decline in the number of people working in factories. It looks like companies are beginning to pay attention to making it in America, bringing those jobs home, uh, given the supply chain issues. And that is somewhat of a counterpoint to the issue you just raised, Matt, because if if uh, the Democrats are successful, in it, and 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 I remember Joe Biden and Democrats talking about making an America, and and it took a long time, but now with the administration's policies, it's beginning to happen. Well, that may be the case, and I I, I kind of agree with you also that you're actually seeing real announcements of of job creation and especially manufacturing and industrial job creation tied to the Inflation Reduction Act and the investments in electric vehicles and renewable energy technologies. And those things are very real and and fantastic. You're similarly seeing lots of announcements of projects and job creation tied to the bipartisan infrastructure bill. All of those things are great. And I agree. I'm just telling you that economically, what's the number one issue? Inflation. What is the Fed worried about? Raising interest rates to restrain inflation. What is Larry Summers warning us all about? We're going to probably have to go through a recession at some point, probably in 2023, in order to wring the inflation out of the economy. When you have this many American workers who are not able to rejoin the labor force because of long COVID, it creates a scarcity of labor. It creates a, a an upward pressure on workers' ability to bid up their wages, all right? Scarcity, price and supply and demand raises prices. And so when you have a demand for employees, that is going to put upward pressure on inflation. It's going to make the Fed's job harder. And for years to come, we're going to be dealing with the economic consequences of this many able-bodied, otherwise able-bodied American workers unable to participate in the labor force. So Matt, I think your narrative on COVID or long COVID or whatever you want to call it is proof that you and your party are just globalists, socialists who are expanding this narrative of the existence of COVID just to control Americans' lives. Okay. That, I don't believe anything I just said, but Paul, that answers your question why Republicans won't talk about it because there is a sector of the far right that believe what I just said. They will not believe that there are this many people who have long COVID. There is actually a contingency. It may only be 10% of the far right, but they were pretty loud the last two and a half years who believe this insanity about a conspiracy regarding this. I'm with you guys, and I disagree with the assertion by the president that COVID's over. It's not over. Um, My father-in-law is in Greece right now. He can't come home. Why? Because he has COVID. 
and he's 80 years old. This is, it, it's not over. It's better because we're vaccinated and boosted. And, you know, most of society has taken the responsibility to do that for themselves and their families. But this is with us forever. And for those that got sick and have long COVID, it's literally with them forever. And, but Republicans aren't talking about it because of that very small far right contingency that bought into extreme views kind of promoted by Donald Trump. And that's unfortunate. Well, you know, that segues into a little bit of a sidebar that I want to have with you guys. It's it's another piece of this. We're coming down the stretch and some of the lingering questions in the air. Like I said at the top of the show, Politico's formula for it was four big issues. We've hit abortion. We've hit the economy slash inflation. Um, we still could talk about immigration and Trump and we should and and what we do every week. So, um, you know, I, I, I want to get to those. But let's just sidetrack for one second onto something else that bubbled up at the end of last week and through the weekend, which is this question of whether the polling we're looking at is telling us the wrong story again. It got to the point where, first of all, there was a narrative forming that Republicans are having a little bit of a bounce back in the polls after about a solid four to six weeks of Democrats gaining momentum. It, it got that narrative gained so much steam that Nate Silver had to take to the pages of 538 to kind of provide a little bit of pushback and say, no, we're, we're not quite there yet. And then there was a lot of distress from the New York Times, from Nate Cohn there, um, as well as, again, from Playbook about, are the pollsters missing things again? Are, are they getting it wrong? Because you are seeing polling in a number of places where pollsters have gotten it wrong and they've undercounted that faction that Alicia, you were just talking about that kind of, I don't know what you want to call them, right wing faction that's maybe a little pollster shy or maybe for whatever other reason isn't showing up in the numbers. And they're probably going to show up at the election. Are, are we missing it? So I guess that's a question to both of you. Have you been following this this back and forth about the polling? And what do you think about it, Paul? Yeah, look, polling is a, is is a snapshot in time, and there are huge changes in the way pollsters can now reach the electorate. People are abandoning their landlines; they're using cell phones. It's harder to uh, for pollsters to reach people on on cell phones. Um, polling has always been somewhat hit or miss. I mean, I'm thinking back to the to the uh, Obama New Hampshire primary, where polls showed him doing great, and he lost. Um, I mean, so we we've all had experience with polls that may not be picking up everything they they need to be picking up. Is it happening here? I don't know. Tell, call, ask me in November, how did the pollsters do? Um, but it's really hard hard to tell. What I can tell you is that I'm seeing uh, hugely energized uh, Democratic base voters. Uh, for example, um, here in New Hampshire, the annual uh, uh, dinner, the Eleanor Roosevelt dinner, 750 people showed up at a midterm uh, for a Democratic fundraising event. That's that's a that's a good sized crowd in New Hampshire. So people are are people Democrats are energized. We know that. And whether it's abortion, whether it's loss of rights, whether it's Trump, whether it's the insurrection and attack on our democracy, um, 
that it's clear that the trends, the overall trend from the spring to now has Democrats doing a lot better than we thought they would be doing when we were talking a few months ago. Alicia, anything you're seeing in this in this back and forth about the polls or it's just standard back and forth about the polls and who knows? I think it's standard back and forth about the polls and who knows. The thing about polls, though, is that, you know, as Paul said, they're a snapshot in time. If you want to glean any information from them, you have to look at a series of them and see how things are trending. And, and Paul just mentioned that as well. The trending is what will give you far more information that one spot in time. The reason pollsters are having so much trouble getting it right every time is because before you can do a successful, accurate poll, you have to answer the question, question, who's going to go vote? And that is the hardest question to answer leading up to an election. Campaigns try to do it. Pollsters try to do it. Strategists try to do it. And and there's always going to be something you miss. You know, will abortion drive more people out to vote on that issue? Will the economy and food prices drive people out who maybe don't generally vote, particularly in a midterm election? Will other factors make people vote? Will, you know, people come out and vote against um, Trump adhered, MAGA adhered candidates because they're kind of tired of that whole narrative? you got to answer the question of who's going to come out and vote. And and that's the hard one to answer. Well, I see that bridges right back perfectly to the the setup for the show today, which was we're going through these four big issues and there's a new piece of polling out on immigration. We devoted a lot of time last week to talking about Ron DeSantis's stunt to fly migrants from Texas to Massachusetts using Florida funds. And there's a new Reuters Ipsos poll saying just 29% of respondents supported what he did, 40% oppose it. But your point, Alicia, I think is the better one, which is that's not that surprising a result. And actually, in a way, who cares? What really matters is who was activated, who was encouraged and attuned and paying attention, and what was the overall narrative about? And the point that we keep making on the show is, If the discussion, if the political discussion and the news environment is about immigration, that's advantage Republicans. And if the voters who are activated and motivated to show up to vote in the midterms are disproportionately Republicans, obviously advantage Republicans. And that's what an issue like this does. And that's what a stunt like this does. So when you look at a poll like that and you say, oh, this issue is actually hurting Republicans. Just take that with a giant hunk of salt. It's probably the reverse. It's not necessarily the case that a polling result like that that's upside down is actually hurting the Republican Party because it's the salience of it. It's who gets motivated and it's what it does to the overall media narrative. I think you know it's hard to break down something like that. I think immigration will weigh heavily in certain states. I think that will be be what drives those who are those people that are going to vote. There are going to be Republicans and conservatives in certain southern border states that are driven out in the north. The only people that are going to go out driven by immigration are people that a we're going to vote anyway and b are voting Republican anyway. So it's not a big swing issue um, outside of the border states into the south. I think that poll that 40 percent were opposed to it, only 20 something percent supported it. Uh, that pleases me. It pleases me because that wasn't about immigration. That issue had nothing to do with immigration. That stunt had to do with politics and it was cruel to our fellow man. And I think what that poll reflects has nothing to do with immigration. It simply reflects that wasn't cool. Well, that gets us then to our very last issue, which is our regular feature on this show, This Week in Trump. 
Politico's point was the Trump of it all is going to be one of the major pivot points in the election. Right. Obviously, the the news over the weekend was kind of interesting. There was a big 60 Minutes piece with Denver Riggleman. He is a former conservative, and I do mean conservative. He was a Freedom Caucus member of the U.S. House of Representatives after he officiated at a wedding, a same-sex wedding between two of his staffers. He was pushed out of the Republican Party and lost his reelection. And then he became a staffer for the January 6th committee, because he is an expert data analyst. And he had some really shocking revelations. I don't want to dive into the specifics of that piece. It's 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 really interesting. It's a great watch. But I guess the point is the January 6th committee is starting up again. This has the prospect of once again, keeping Trump front and center in front of voters. And Paul, you and I have an exciting announcement. We are set if it doesn't fall through, because it has before, it's just the way these things go. There are more important things in the world than appearing on podcasts. But Jamie Raskin, one of the foremost members of the January 6th committee, is set to appear on our show early next week. So I, I think that, first of all, I, I hope people will subscribe so you can catch that. And second of all, Paul, I mean, I think that's that's really the, the, the key here of all this is the January 6th kind of restart in the next few weeks really does have the prospect of bringing all of this really sorted stuff once again, front and center for voters. I think, I think you're right. I think, uh, I think that the hearings had an effect on voters. I really do. I think that it, it, the, the hearings were done so well, uh, despite Alicia's uh, uh, complaining that the hearings were overproduced. They were too Hollywood. No, they were effective as well. They were with Republican after Republican after Republican dropping a dime on Trump and the um, insurrectionists uh, who made up the criminal conspiracy to deprive the American people of the legitimate results of their vote. So bringing it back just before election, really good. Really, really, it makes me happy. I'm jumping up and down and clicking my heels. Well, speaking of clicking, I hope everyone will click to subscribe to Beyond Politics because hopefully we will have Congressman Raskin joining us next week. All right. Now we get to finish on a fun run. Alicia Preston, you brought this extremely important story to our attention right before we got on the air. U.S. News and World Report doesn't just do college rankings. They do country rankings now because if the college rankings are awful, why not apply it to nations? And you have some exciting news about the United States. Do you want to break it to our listeners? We have moved up. From the last few years, we are now in the top five best countries in the world. Yay. And there was much rejoicing. Yay. Yay. That's There was much rejoicing. I mean, but we did, I know... before we go, you know, we have a brief statement that I'm happy that GOP United States senators have come out to clarify that Donald Trump cannot declassify documents with his mind. Oh, um, no, that's not true. That's <clears throat> not true because because if you are able to control Jewish space lasers with your mind, then <laughs> clearly mm-hmm. if they're classified, you see where I'm going with this. Uh-huh. It's so facto. Mm. And, and for those of a certain age, just think of Johnny Carson, the great Karnak 
with the turban holding the card up to his head and thinking, I declassify everything. It's strongly declassified. I'm going to declassify everything. In fact, I'm taking some paper towels, some presidential paper towels from the White House bathroom. I'm do, declassifying do you know what the best version of that two? was. Do you, do you ever see the best one of those? Which Kardak holds up the envelope and he says, sis, boom, ba." <laughs> and Ed Mayen says, sis, boom, ba. And then Carson opens the envelope and he says, what sound does an exploding sheep make? <laughs> <laughs> hey, on that note, I want to wish a very happy Rosh Hashanah, Lashana Tova to all of our Jewish listeners out there. And um, just stay off the space lasers. That, that's no, all I ask. That's right. Don't use those space lasers. No space lasers. We'll see you next time. No space lasers.